The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did the Medici influence the Renaissance? Just how rich were they? And what dark family secrets were lurking in their past? Well, in the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series... Professor Catherine Fletcher, author of The Beauty and the Terror, An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance, answers listener questions and popular online search queries about the notorious Florentine family. Putting your questions to Catherine was our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies. So welcome to the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, and today we're going to be discussing the Medici. I'm joined by Catherine Fletcher, and she's going to be answering the questions that you, our listeners, have sent in to us, as well as some popular online search queries. So to start us off then, Catherine, how do you actually pronounce Medici? Uh, Well, um, English speakers will often say Medici, but the Italian pronunciation is Medici with a stress on the first syllable. I will try to go for Medici from now on then, (laughs) be as authentic as possible. And for a good contextual question, who were the Medici family and what were they famous for? Well, they're famous as the ruling family of Florence, um, really from the 15th century through until um, early in the 18th. They make their money as bankers. They become these super rich patrons of the arts. And gradually they transfer from having um, a significant role within the city government to actually becoming the hereditary dukes of the city-state of Florence and then the grand dukes of Tuscany. And in terms of time frame, how long were they ruling for? What's the period that they are in power? So the start date um, is a little bit difficult to establish very precisely. They are office holders in Florence as early as 1296. Um, You can kind of allegedly trace their um, family line back to um, some knight who fought for Charlemagne. I think we're into a little bit of mythology there. Um, There's a bit of decline in the 14th century and then you really pick up with Giovanni di Bici de' Medici um, who kind of starts repeatedly getting elected into the city authorities and and becomes gonfaloniere in 1421. So that's kind of almost like the head of state type role. Um, So, you know, because it's an elected office and people go in and out of it, pinning down when they start ruling is a tricky one, but definitely they then rule through until 1737-ish, which is when the last, I mean, that's when the last of the Medici dies and leaves the art collection to the city. So looking more closely at their rise to power, we've had a question from June Nethercott via Twitter and she wants to know who was the first of the Medici and what was their particular strength? Well, the family really made their money in the wool trade and in banking. So um, what they're doing with wool is they're importing wool from Northern Europe, including from England and from the Low Countries, the Netherlands bringing it to Florence where they have the kind of techniques and the manufacturing to process it into a very um, refined product. And alongside that trade, the Medici are bankers. 
Um, so they lend money um, to other people, as, as banks do, um, and they basically make a profit by hoping to get a larger return on what they have lent out than the initial expenditure. Uh, so, so that's really their, um, the, the financial background. It's very much a mercantile background. They are people who are making money from trading. And that's important in how their reputation sort of grows and also how they're criticised. Because a lot of people are quite snobbish about merchants, you know, it's rather sordid trade business, not really kind of aristocratic thing to do. So we've had a question about their money. And this is from Thomas Kendall. And he asked via Twitter, just how rich were they? Oh, gosh. Well, early in the 15th century, when Giovanni di Bici died, he left a fortune which is estimated at 180,000 gold florins. Now, that is really in the super rich category for the period. He's not actually the richest man in Florence yet, but he's getting there. The family very quickly get to be some of the richest people in Europe. So, you know, we really are on a level with today's billionaires. That's the kind of scale of money that we're looking at. And continuing to look at the banks, um, we've had a question from All Time Daydreamer on Instagram, and they want to know, how did the bank start to decline? So one of the key things that the Medici Bank is doing is lending money out to other states and governments. So this is not the kind of period when we have national banks. There's no Bank of England, there's no kind of Federal Reserve, obviously, um, there's no kind of Bank of Italy. Um, you have to, you know, governments want to borrow, borrow money, borrow from private banks. The Medici do a lot of this. They do it in Italy with the Duke of Ferrara and the Republic of Venice. So Italy has lots of different little states at this time. It's not all one country. Um, they make loans to, among other people, um, the King of England, um, Edward IV. And whole set of wars going on in England at this time, the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century. And the King of England is a kind of bad risk as somebody to lend to. But, you know, because he's a king, you're not really going to turn him down, particularly because he's also the person who needs to agree to your wool exports leaving the country and give you those export permits for the wool. Um, so, <laughs> you, you know, when he comes, he says, I'd like to borrow some money, please. It's kind of like you haven't got a choice. So they lend money among other people, to the King of England, um, he doesn't pay it back. He just says, well, you can keep deducting what I owe you from, you know, but, but I'll give you a reduction in the tariffs that we would charge on the wool. Gives him a preferential trade deal, but that's not the same as actually having your cash back in hand. Um, and this has a knock-on effect to the Bruges branch of the bank. So by this point, the bank has got all sorts of branches um, across Europe. And there are some other factors that kick in. There's mismanagement. Um, some guy in Bruges is kind of cooking the books a bit. Um, there's a devaluation that some historians think of gold um, relative to silver, possibly also causes some problems. But basically, there's a kind of whole set of factors that stack up, which means that over the course of the 15th century, the Medici become much more dependent on holding offices within the city of Florence and the kind of patronage possibilities that gives them, as opposed to making their money privately as merchants. We've had a question from Philip on Instagram, and he wants to know how many popes um, have there been from the family? Okay, um, so there are two major Medici popes in the 1520s and 30s. So those are um, Pope Leo X, um, Giovanni de' Medici, who is elected in um, 1513, um, and then his cousin, um, 
Giulio de' Medici, who takes the, the name Clement VII, and he um, is in power from 1523 um, to um, through to 34. And then later on in the centuries, a couple of people who are also members of the Medici family, one is from a very distant branch in Milan, so that's Pius IV. So he does associate himself with the Medici, but he's actually not really a part of the main Florentine ruling family. And then there's Leo XI, who is much closer relative, but he lasts less than a month as Pope before he dies. So there's really the two, the, when generally when we talk about Medici Popes, we mean the two big ones from the main kind of branch of the family who are around sort of 1517 to 34. And we've had a really interesting question in from MHFK via Instagram. And they say, was it their financial, political or religious power that gave them the greatest sway in Florence? You see, I think all those things are important at different times. So initially, it's having the banking fortune that enables them to start up, win friends, win allies, kind of keep make themselves an influential family get themselves, you know, ha- have their foreign banking clients help them out of political trouble when their enemies are kind of on the up in the Florentine elections, right? And they try to force the Medici into exile. So initially it's the financial power, but then it's that building of political al- alliances, making themselves a party through the 15th century, which enables them to become the leading players in Florence um, and really the kind of first citizens, effectively lead the, the lords, um, Pope Pius II um, calls Cosimo the Elder king in all but name, which kind of sums it up. But then later on, they get kicked out again into exile in 1494. And it's at that point that the religious power in the papacy becomes really important because that keeps them with a toehold, with access to finances, running a court um, as a cardinal's court in Rome. It means that they can survive 18 years sort of in the wilderness before they come back again in 1512. So there's lots of times when these different factors, um, you know, really come to the fore. But it's that combination of influence and money in Florence, but then also that second power base in Rome, which is really quite important. And on the flip side, obviously there were some in the family who were less powerful. And we've had a few questions in about this. So we've had one from Natasha Lavender who asked us on Facebook, were there any who lived normal lives and were embarrassed by their power-hungry relatives? (laughs) Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm not sure about embarrassed. Uh, There are certainly um, some of the Medici who really, really fall out. Um, So, for example, and, uh, and... particularly actually in the 1530s, when the family made this um, jump from being um, the leading citizens of um, Florence to being its hereditary dukes. Now, that is a very, very controversial decision. Um, It's not one that even a lot of their allies support. And the first Duke of Florence, Alessandro de' Medici, comes to power um, in 1531 as Duke in 1532, actually gets assassinated by a cousin, um, Lorenzino, in 1537. And Lorenzino um, claims that he's doing this because he feels like Florence should go back to being a republic. Um, And, you know, he doesn't agree with the Dutch. He wants the kind of Republicans to rise up in rebellion and um, take back power from the Medici. It doesn't actually happen. There is a a kind of war, but another of the Medici cousins um, 
becomes Duke Cosmo de' Medici um, in 1537. And from that point in, they are all the kind of dukes and grand dukes. But yeah, there is conflict even within the family about what sort of ruling structure they ought to have. Although some people would also say that Laurentino has his own personal financial motivations for what he does and that Republican stuff is all a little bit of an excuse. But who knows? <laughs> and another huge area that the family influence is art and culture in the Renaissance. They're a massive factor in the growth of the Renaissance in Italy. Um, so Alex Plotkin on Facebook wants to know how did they aid progress in the Renaissance? Well, I think you know, part of what the ruling families in all the different Italian states do at this time is to compete in their magnificence with their patronage. This is very much part of showing off um, your honour, showing off the honour of your state. Being magnificent is regarded as a virtue of princes. So if you've got aspirations in that direction towards nobility, then absolutely you want to have the best court festivals, you want to patronise the best artists, and so on and so forth. Um, but there are lots of um, cases when, you you know, they patronise. It's kind of everybody who was anybody, right? So Leonardo da Vinci is in there, Botticelli is in the list, um, Michelangelo, scientists like Galileo, um, poets including um, Laura Battaferra, um, Artemisia Gentileschi, one of the major um, women portraitists, um, a little bit later on onto the Medici Dukes, um, as is Galileo. He's also in the the later um, ducal and grand ducal period. Um, So there is a huge amount of art patronage, architectural patronage going on. Um, And that's important from a princely point of view. It's also, I mean, particularly earlier on with some of the religious art, this is a part of doing good works for your church. And particularly for a family like the Medici, who are involved in a certain amount of dubious political business and in money lending, which is still regarded as quite problematic for Christians. And one of the ways of sort of atoning for your sins is by, um, you know, endowing your local chapel with gorgeous religious art um, to educate people as well who are not literate about the the stories of the Bible and so forth. So, you know, this all fits in, in in multiple ways to a society that is very kind of visual, this is very, um, in the court context, luxurious. So we've got a counterfactual question in from Anna Glogo, who asked on Instagram, how different would the Renaissance have been without the influence of the Medici family? Well, I have to say there are lots and lots of other people doing this same type of thing. Um, So you've got the uh, Marquises of Mantua, the Dukes of Milan, you have the um, the Venetian doge and ruling families. Um, You know, the Medici are not by any means the only people. And I'm not a great one for the sort of great man and genius school of history that says, well, you know, these people were particularly outstanding. I mean, if you look at the families around them, actually there are lots of people who are also engaged in major architectural commissions and so forth. So probably if it hadn't been the Medici, it would have been somebody else from this society because this is a very, very wealthy society, one of the richest bits of Europe. People have a lot of spare money to spend and they get into this cultural competition. So I suspect if it hadn't been them, yeah, it would have been somebody else. And we've had what I think is a very interesting question in from Soraya Makida, who asked on Instagram, were there ever any disputes about which artists they should become patrons of? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, there are certainly, not, not, not so much, I think, you know, 
that I'm aware of the Medici sort of fighting between themselves about which artist they ought to patronise. But, I mean, they do get quite um, acquisitive at some point. Um, So, for example, again, I mean, once they become dukes in the 1530s, you find um, First Duke Alessandro actually kind of appropriating this um, painting that was in the middle of being done for somebody else, um, a chap called Bettini, um, to a design by Michelangelo and saying, actually... I'd quite like that painting now. And the artist Pontormo, who's painting it to Michelangelo's design, you know, ends up just handing it over because, you know, he's the Duke of Florence now. And the original client has to live with just having the cartoon, which you can imagine is quite annoying if you've gone to the trouble of getting getting this um this sort of lovely um sort of painting of Venus commissioned. But this so so this there, there is definitely stuff like that. There is definitely competition and um, between the Italian princes as well for the best people. I mean, Leonardo is a good example because he starts off um, in Florence, but then he quite quickly gets headhunted by the Duke of Milan. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But a lot of time when we talk about like the bad Catherine, it's like it's this sort of Machiavellian person who goes about poisoning her enemies in this kind of court intrigue sort of sense. And there's a, a story goes on that, you know, it was she had her husband's brother poisoned so that they could become king and queen instead. She had the Queen of Navarre poisoned. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. And we've had a bit of a myth-busting question in for you from RW8966 via Instagram. And they want to know, did Giuliano de' Medici and Simonetta Vespucci, a muse of Botticelli, have an affair? Uh, well, like people always like to make a lot of romantic stories around um, Simonetta because, um, well, there's a, there's a, a number of Botticelli paintings of this kind of very um, glorious um, blonde woman who is generally, many of them are called Simonetta, even though some of them we're not actually sure whether it is her or not. Um, people like to, to mythologize around her. And there is a story about um, Giuliano kind of at a joust um, being shown her favor. Now, I think this is probably more likely just your quite typical chivalric performance in which you very often see sort of noblemen or aspiring noblemen, um, you know, performing this sort of chivalric love towards ladies. And we shouldn't necessarily read anything more into it than that um, Simonetta, as a kind of virtuous Florentine woman, um, would really not be expected to be actually having an affair. So I think that I would be a little bit cautious about making that assumption, although obviously it's, it's always nice to imagine. And we've had lots of questions sent in about the women of the family. Uh, So to kick off this portion of the podcast, we've got a question from Teresa. And she asked on Facebook, can you tell us more about the lesser known women, such as Contessina de Bardi? Yes. So, um, I mean, 
women's role in Florentine politics is often quite hidden, um, perhaps more so in Florence than almost anywhere else in Italy. And that's partly because of the nature of the political system. So this is a republic. It's got elected ruling councils. Only men of a certain middle class are allowed to stand for election to these councils. So it's not like, um, say, a duchy, where the duchess might be quite important and holding court very directly. The women are quite removed from politics, which is not to say they're not involved at all. They are quite extensively involved, particularly, for example, in negotiating marriage alliances between the families, um, which is very, very important for sort of political party building, in advising their sons, in acting as kind of intercessors. So, you know, if you want something done in Florence, one way of getting that message through to whoever's the, the male head of the family is to write to his wife and say, you know, dear Duchess, I wonder if you might assist me. I'm having a problem with my neighbour regarding some sheep. I mean, there literally is stuff that's <laughs> on that level. It's kind of really, really practical things. Or, you know, my my sister was widowed, but her husband's family aren't giving back the dowry, you, you know, or there's all these kind of, you know, the various different kind of arguments about dowries. Very, very, very practical details. Somebody's relative has been unjustly imprisoned. Can you help? And so the ladies of Florence, the, the, the ladies in the Medici, family get all these kind of letters in and and they act and they're patrons as well in their own right and important patrons of art and architecture we've had a lot of questions in as well about one figure in particular and that is Catherine de Medici so to start us off could you let us know who she is and give us an overview of her life so Catherine de Medici was born in 1519 lived till 1589 and she just to sort of situate where she is she's a kind of great great granddaughter of Cosmo the Elder and those uh, that those first couple of generations of big bankers and she's the half-sister of the first Duke of Florence Alessandro. So we're here in the 16th century and in 1533 as part of a set of mar- very spectacular foreign marriage alliances that are being made by Pope Clement VII for his nieces and nephews. Catherine gets married to the second son of the King of France. Now, what then happens is that the first son of the King of France dies. So Catherine and her husband are suddenly in line to be queen and king. It's really not expected. Um, But she goes on to be queen of France. um, And not only does she become queen of France, three of her sons become kings of France, inheriting from one another as they all die young. Her daughter becomes queen of France after those lot, and another daughter becomes queen of Spain. So there's this sudden spectacular set of royal descendants via Catherine, who in her own right is probably the most, the single most powerful member of the Medici family ever, as, you know, queen of a much, much larger territory and ruling kind of on behalf of her, her young sons at various points. Um, and incredibly powerful sort of through that period of the religious wars in France as well. And unfortunately for Catherine, she doesn't have the best of historical reputations. Um, and we've had a couple of people want to know how true this reputation is. So Keely Watson asked on Facebook, was Catherine really as bad as her reputation? And Kath Casper asked on Instagram, was Catherine as bad as history remembers her to be? 
I mean, one very, very major event um, that I think really does kind of stain Catherine's reputation in important ways. But a lot of time when we talk about like the bad Catherine, it's like it's this sort of Machiavellian person who goes about poisoning her enemies in this kind of court intrigue sort of sense. And there's a, a story goes on that, you know, it was she had her husband's brother poisoned so that they could become king and queen instead. She had the Queen of Navarre poisoned um, and all, all these sort of stories. But actually, I think the, the much more significant place where, you know, we could really see a link between Catherine and political violence is in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, which is a part of the religious wars between Protestants and Catholics in France. And it's basically a massacre, and cut a long story short, of the Huguenot Protestant side um, just after the marriage, um, which was meant to kind of settle some of this um, conflict of Catherine's daughter, um, Margaret, to um, Henri IV um, of Navarre. And basically... um, a bunch of leading um, Protestants are in um, Paris for this wedding. They um, are massacred, um, apparently at the instigation of um, Catherine and her son, um, the young King Charles. And not that young, he was 22. This is not the case of the Catherine manipulating a child. Um, but it ends up with a series of um, attacks on Protestants with thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people across France being killed. So I think in that decision um, of really going to war against the Protestant faction, you know, that's where Catherine's bad reputation quite deservedly comes from. And perhaps it's more deserved there than it is in some of the other um, myth-making around her that is, interestingly at the time, you know, a lot of what she gets criticised for is having a merchant background, not being sufficiently high class. That's so Not bizarre. Enough. But the Medi- this is, you know, she they, they get at her because the Medici are merchants originally. And she's a kind of mm. merchant's daughter. So you can imagine why people are very conscious of being themselves part of the old nobility. Think these guys are upstarts. You know, they're not properly royal. How dare she be the, the Queen of France? Well... I think they needed to reassess their judgments if that was the main <laughs> issue they had. Um, you did mention myths to do with Catherine poisoning people. And we we have had a question from Nat0917 on Instagram, and they did wonder how many people did she poison? Do, do we know or is it all myth? I mean, I think the thing is that um, you know, this is not a period when they had, you know, CSI and forensics <laughs> and so on. So, you know, almost anybody who dies an untimely death, particularly if they're involved in politics and have got some enemies, a rumour of poison pops up. And it's actually very, very difficult to prove. I mean, there are cases where individuals are tortured into confessing. There are cases where there's kind of quite strong circumstantial evidence I'm not particularly seeing, you you know, there are much better cases for the Medici engaging in poisoning of people. I mean, there's a poison, Cardinal Hippolyta de Medici gets poisoned in the 1530s. I think it's fairly clear that whoever did that was working on behalf of um, his cousin Alessandro. Whether exactly, you know, who gave the precise order, I think is unclear, but there are much better documented cases of poisoning by members of the Medici than anything that I'm aware of attaching to Catherine. So we've touched on the dark side of the family, um, and this links in really well to the next question, which is asked by, and I do apologise if I pronounce this wrongly, Annalena Ogle on Instagram, who says, were they as corrupt as people make them seem? 
Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that um, they absolutely, in the 15th century, had their hands in the till in terms of the Florentine state. They were borrowing money from the government. Um, this is before they had officially the hereditary rulers in the city to fund their own lifestyle. Now, they would no doubt justify that by saying, you know, we're the first citizens, we've got to live in a certain, to a certain standard. Just, but just as you have controversies today about, you know, how much MPs vote to pay themselves, right? They were kind of voting to pay themselves, right? Actually not voting to pay themselves an awful lot more um, money. So I think there's a kind of, you know, there, there is a kind of sense there that what they do is they gradually sort of take over the state and they take that over in quite an illegitimate way that, you know, they increasingly manipulate the governing structures by setting up emergency committees and then kind of policing who can be elected to these emergency committees. So you get that kind of hollowing out of, you know, the, 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 the by no means perfect democratic structures in the modern sense, but they have a, a, a an electoral base, a system of elections, and the Medici sort of start going around those to appropriate more and more state power for themselves. And thinking about the other powerful Italian families of the time, uh, we've got a question from William Cavanaugh via Twitter, and he says, were they as bad as the Borgias or have they just benefited from better PR? You know, I, I think it's quite difficult to um, draw a line once you start looking between which of these families is worse. I think where the Medici have the advantage over the Borgias is that they are not foreign. Because it, the Borgias are always somewhat stigmatised on the basis of being from um, being from Spain. They are, you know, Spain is in turn stigmatised as having a lot of Jews and Muslims in it. The Borgias get stigmatised. They kind of, I mean, they're, they're, you know, for being allegedly too favourable to Jewish people. Um, they So there's a kind of whole... Um, sense in which, yeah, the Borgias get a lot of stick. The Borgias fail in establishing themselves in a state and the Medici succeed, um, albeit making themselves quite unpopular along the way. Um, and actually, the people are probably the most successful with it. The people you've never heard of, the Farnese, who managed to do all this really, really discreetly um, a couple of decades later. And, you know, they made themselves Dukes of Parma and Piacenza, um, and we don't even talk about them now. They're not famous because they never had the controversy around doing it that the Borgias had or the Medici had. Next up, we have a question from Soraya Makeda, and they asked on Instagram, who is the least loved of the family and why? Oh, gosh, I think this has to be Alessandro. And I wrote a whole book about Alessandro, and I'm kind of actually quite fascinated But I think... Like, there's two reasons why Alessandro is the least loved of the Medici. So, one, he's the first of them to be the Duke, um, which is, um, I, which, which means that he takes all the stick for that kind of transition and quite brutal transition into ruling as the kind of absolute rulers of the city and setting up the hereditary line. But also, Alessandro was illegitimate. His mother was probably a servant um, who was sexually exploited by one of the Medici men. And a lot of people think she was of um, African heritage. She's certainly referred to in the sources as a slave and as Moorish and as half Negro. So the visual evidence kind of ties up with that. So Alessandro, particularly from kind of 19th century historians, gets a lot of racism kind of attached on top of this idea that he's all, he's already the bad guy because he's the first of the dukes. And then also, oh, well, you don't look, what else would you expect? 
sort of say these 19th century historians. So there's a really interesting story there about the way that the history of the Medici fits is told, not just in terms of what happened at the time, but also in terms of the broader social context of the later historians who are telling it. Um, and, and we see that particularly with, with that with that case and how it's depicted. And changing tack now, we've got a question from Lilithgow who asks on Instagram, were they as sexy as reputation would have it? <laughs> I think maybe this is like, you know, the impression that's been given in the TV show. But actually, you know, uh, again, there are a number of illegitimate children in the Medici family, which is probably the most solid evidence you get for how much sex outside marriage was going on. But not like loads and loads, actually, not by comparison to, you know, some um, some people in the period where you could easily list, you know, half a dozen um, children with mistresses and with kind of random women who they, they picked up one night. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that kind of... Again, where the story about um, you, you know there, there are some, there are some kind of you know quite dramatic stories. So there's one of the one of the later dukes who um, marries his mistress after the death of his wife, and a kind of whole sort of set of questions again about sort of poisoning and murder that come in there. I mean, there's an allegation that Julia de Medici, Pope Pope Clement VII, had an illegitimate son. Um, there's an allegation that um, Pope Leo X was mainly interested in men, um, which is also, you know, plausible, and um, particularly given the culture of where that was quite widely tolerated in 15th century Florence. Um, but on the whole, yeah, I think this is, again, it's kind of a part of a, a sort of mythology and a popular um, representation. And you've just spoken about mythology, which leads perfectly on to the next question, <laughs> uh, which is from... Tracy Kerr, who asks on Instagram, how much of what we understand about the family is myth? I think it's it's not so much as it's myth, like quite a lot of what we know about the Medici is grounded in fact. But it's interesting to think about why it becomes important to later generations. And I think part of the reason um, there is actually going back to the fact that the Medici... Um, are interesting to um, later writers, particularly into the 18th and the 19th century, because they're merchants, because they operate at least initially in a republic, and therefore they're a kind of model for modern merchant princes who've made these massive fortunes from trade, have money to spend on art and culture, they're looking back into history for a model for their own philanthropy. So oddly, it's because, you know, although the merchant stuff was quite stigmatised by the nobility at the time, when you move a bit further forward in history, it's suddenly the thing that makes them attractive as people to write history is about to talk about because they're doing all this exciting art patronage that you see, you know, your later generations, your Carnegie's and your Tate's and so forth, equally wanting to, um, you know, build art galleries, build libraries and so on and have these models in the past for what they are doing in their present. And looking out wider than the Italian states, we've got a question from Harrison Leff, who asked us on Instagram, how did aristocrats in other parts of Europe view them? See, here I think we're back to that question about the merchant status and not being quite properly noble. And I think there's a, there's a particular sort of 
contest um, around where they sit within the order of precedence of the princes in Europe, particularly after they get to be made not just dukes, but grand dukes, where I think there's a certain amount of resentment that they're perhaps rising above themselves. And everybody knows that, after all, they made their money out of trade. And, you know, there is always, I think, um, with this family, this sense that they are not quite truly royal, that everybody knows kind of where they came from, and that never entirely leaves them. But as I say, like later on, that actually starts to play in their favour as the people with the money in the world start to be other people like the Medici who made their fortunes from banking. Do you think that the Medicis are overrated in European history, as asked by Tommy O'Mac? Oh, gosh. I mean, I always find it fascinating that we talk about the Medici disproportionately, I think, to some of the other fascinating families of Renaissance Italy. So as a specialist, um, you know, I find the estate of Ferrara intriguing and the Gonzaga family in Mantua. Um, There are all these different kind of princes and ruling houses who are doing incredible art patronage. And, you know, in building these amazing tiny courts, you have all the papal families and so on and so forth. And I think, again, sometimes it's not so much that the Medici are themselves overrated, but they do get an awful lot of press and an awful lot of attention. And I think that, that again, comes back to the fact that almost they are the people who were really reclaimed and built up as important. But I also think it's because in the English-speaking world, um, really from quite early on, you start to get a big Anglo and Anglo-American community in Tuscany, in Florence, um, valuing that art. It's really where modern art history starts with um, Bernard Berenson um, setting up in his villa outside Florence to sort of start doing this sort of forensic study of paintings and that and doing his attributions and so forth. And I think, again, that also plays into why there's this very, very strong kind of Anglo-Florentine connection, because there always has been a significant English community, um, English-speaking community um, there in Florence. And do you think the controversial elements played in as well, with people wanting to read about a racier kind of history, perhaps? I mean, I think one of the incredible things about the Medici is that they have that um, very classic rise and fall story to them. You know, you could talk about how they came from being just another of the merchant families of Florence to making this fantastic fortune from the bank to becoming these incredible patrons of art associated with all the big names. And then there's this sort of twist when we suddenly have, oh, I kind of hang on a minute, are they the bad guys when they make themselves um, the, the princes of the city? Um, we have Machiavelli coming into the story as well around that point um, as a kind of almost on the opposite side, but then sometimes working for the Medici as well. And then we have this sort of slow decline until the family um, becomes extinct in 1737. So really, um, and then at that point, they almost, they, they rather cleverly, in fact, preserve their own inheritance by leaving their art collection to the city with the proviso that it mustn't be split up, it has to stay there. And that, I think, is another important factor in why the Medici are so, you know, retain that interest now, because a lot of the other Italian ruling families that um, where the main line became extinct, they just sold off the collections. You know, King Charles I brought a load of stuff from Mantua. 
over to England. Um, the Este arms collection ended up somewhere outside Prague. It just all got split up. Whereas with the Medici, no, it's all still there. You can go and see it. And focusing more on the rise and fall, particularly the fall, why is it that they lose power exactly? What happens? I mean, they never lose power in Florence, actually. I mean, they keep ruling Florence until they run out of legitimate heirs in the main line of the family. And at that point, early in the 18th century, they, there's a junior line of the family um, who try and make a play for it, but they're, not, they're just not sufficiently recognised as legitimate enough to be allowed to take over. So it's, you know, they keep on power as Grand Dukes, but they're becoming relatively less important, I think, on a European stage, because whereas when they start out, um, the city-state of Florence is one of the richest bits of Europe, the world has changed around them and the economic um, centre of gravity has moved somewhere else. And it's moved increasingly towards the rising Spanish Empire, towards um, the growth in the Atlantic economy. Mediterranean is still important, but there's an awful lot of other things that are going on. And so the Medici stay where they are. They keep doing what they've always done, but just how that sits on a world stage starts to look different. We've had a lot of questions about descendants as well. So um, Jill Poren on Twitter says, are there any descendants of the family left? And Nearly Breathless Nick via Instagram says, are there in particular any famous descendants still alive today? Well, that branch that tried to make the claim in 1737, the Medici of Otaiano, um, like they still exist. They're still around. In fact, the head of their family kind of popped up to complain that he wasn't very happy with the TV show Medici Masters of Florence um, when that was on a few okay. years ago. So, yeah, he didn't think he was kind of really doing justice to, to, um, to the family history. Um, so there are some people who do can, can trace their ancestry back to, to the Medici. Um, obviously not very directly. And as with any family of this period... Um, you know, almost there are there are bound to be descendants somewhere. It's just that the main line disappeared, and it's who is allowed to be recognised in the minor branches. So yeah, I mean, you still have plenty of people out there called Medici, um, but of course that's quite a popular name because it simply means doctors. Um, so there's lots of people um, out there with with that name who are not necessarily straightforwardly connected. And our final question comes from Jenny P 1912 via Instagram. And she asks, can we learn anything from the family's rise and fall today? You know, the thing that I always think sums up the Medici is um, a little quote from um, one of the Venetian ambassadors at the court of Clement VII. So this is around the time that Clement VII is turning down Henry VIII's divorce. He's the Pope. This is the Medici Pope has to make the decision on, on Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And this Venetian ambassador comments that the main thing that the Pope is focused on is the fact that he has an infinite desire for Florence to get his family back into power from exile to Florence. It's like an absolute tunnel vision we are the people who ought to be ruling Florence. And if that means that, hey, Henry VIII breaks away, is that's of his own church of England? Who cares? And, you <laughs> did like, and I think that there is this absolute sort of determination that they, that despite all the problems that they go through, despite the periods of exile and so on, they are going to get back in there where they feel they should be. And, you know, obviously that kind of ruthlessness 
only kind of turns into action because they have the money in the first place to make it happen. And you can have all that kind of ruthlessness if you don't have the, the, the money and the political ability to apply it, then it's not going to get you anywhere. But I, I do sort of like have a sneaking admiration for that absolute, you know, we've got one priority, you know, we have one job, which is to be rules of the Florence. And, you know, we're going to do it. That was Catherine Fletcher. Her latest book is The Beauty and the Terror, an alternative history of the Italian Renaissance. And it was published in paperback this year by Vintage. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on healthcare before the NHS. Hold up. 